Well, good morning. How are y'all this morning? I am not Dr. Christopher Moody, and for those that you came this that came this morning to hear Chris Moody, I, I apologize. Please come back next week. Uh, he'll be here, and uh, don't take anything I say uh, too seriously. And, uh, Dr. Chris Moody is. Uh, Lead pastor here, uh, again, my name is uh, Dustin Albanese. Uh, I'm an elder uh, here at First Baptist and been tasked with the responsibility this morning of addressing a question of whether or not it's possible to know God personally. So we have been, for the last six weeks, we have been in a series uh, exploring God and we have looked at some really uh, deep theological questions Uh, questions such as, what's the purpose of my life? Uh, Is is there a God? Questions such as, why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus really God? And then last week, Dr. Moody addressed whether or not the Bible that we have, that we read today, is reliable. And so this morning, we're going to try to wrap it all up and I believe all of these, these things ultimately point to the question of whether or not it's even possible to have a personal relationship with God. So in 1997, uh, as a, a young kid, I received Christ at a camp uh, in Colorado at Young Life. And this morning we're going to go through John 3 and John 4 and we're going to be introduced to two characters that are completely different, but yet still searching. And that's where I found myself in 1997. It's very in a, in a very indifferent position. I didn't know that I needed God. I didn't know that I was searching for anything. But I did know that I wanted to belong. I did know that I wanted to be accepted. And so when the gospel was presented to me, The answer was yes. And just like many of you who have walked down that road, there's a a dividing line there, right? Life before Christ and life after Christ. And so when you look at this question, can I know God personally, it may be a closed-in question for you. It's a closed-in question for me. The answer is yes. I have experienced God personally. My hope this morning is that you'll take the information that we have and as uh, you are walking uh, the walk that you walk daily, as you are encountering those that may not call our God their God, those that don't know Christ personally, that you'll use this information, that you'll use your own personal story and your own personal experience to illuminate the fact that we serve a personal God that desires to know us and spend time with us and wants us to know him. So I'm going to introduce you uh, to the two characters that we're going to be uh, talking about this morning. One uh, you're probably familiar with, his name is Nicodemus. Uh, Just by his name alone, we we learn quite a bit about him. Uh, Nicodemus means ruler of the Jews. We know that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means that he's a teacher. We also know that he's a member of the Sanhedrin a Jewish, a Jewish ruling council, and that would have implied for Nicodemus that he had attained some level of status. He had climbed some kind of corporate ladder and, and attained some success there. 
And so with all of that, we also know that Nicodemus was, was very intelligent. Uh, just off the cuff, as a, a, a good Jewish boy, he would have had to have memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, by the age of 12 or, or 13. So we know that Nicodemus was uh, an intelligent, uh, smart, established, career-oriented individual. And then we are introduced in chapter 4 to the woman at the well. On the complete opposite side, we know from the very get-go that she is a Samaritan woman. And we know that Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. They were considered a half-breed, a mixed race. Uh, Jews did not think that they could trace back their genealogy as they were uh, intermarried with the Assyrians. And so they considered them insignificant and not worth their time. In most cases, they didn't even want to be in their presence. So uh, we know this woman uh, from the very onset that she is struck, uh, she has a strike against her uh, just simply in the fact that she was born a Samaritan. We also see, as we'll read, uh, that it's about the middle of the day when she goes to the well to draw water. Culturally, that would have been abnormal. Uh, women at that time rose early in the morning and went to gather water. And they largely did it as a collective a group of women going together. And that probably would have been a very social time for them, uh, talking about their life, their day, probably talking about their husbands, their children. But that was something that she didn't get to participate in, so we see again that she is outcast. And we can presume that she was likely less educated and uh, probably less wealthy or not wealthy. They both had issues, though, right? So we see, we see that they are on opposite sides of the cultural spectrum. Uh, Nicodemus, wealthy uh, ruler, uh, this woman at the well, obviously at the very bottom of society. But they both had issues. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dead of night. And some people might say that it was just simply because maybe Jesus wasn't busy at that point and he could devote more time to Nicodemus. But in all actuality, Nicodemus came because of the status that he had attained and because of the culture that he was steeped in and he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. But Nicodemus came searching. There was something in Jesus that drew Nicodemus to him. The woman of the well we know is an outcast from society, as we'll read here in just a minute. We know that she is an adulterer. We know that she has had several relationships and cannot seem to find what it is that she's looking for. And we know that she is searching for acceptance and she has yet to find it. So we have two individuals that are on complete opposite ends of the cultural and social spectrum. One is highly regarded and very successful. The other is an outcast and lonely. Nicodemus was seeking and she was indifferent he was serious, and she was indifferent. He was a Jew, and she was a despised Samaritan. The neat thing about that, though, is that they both had issues that only Jesus could deal with. And Jesus took the time to acknowledge each one in their own struggle, in their own battle, and he spent time with them. Can I know God personally? And I hope that as we read into these chapters and we see these two purposeful, intentional, personal encounters that Christ has with these two people, 
that we'll see that Jesus takes the time to know them and allow them to know him personally. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to John 3, we're going to start in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Backing up, we see early on, again, Nicodemus's issue, his, his fear, his lack of courage. He has come to Jesus at night not wanting to be seen. But one of the first things that I see is that Jesus answers a question. And if you look at the end of verse 2, there's not a question mark. And so we, we right off the bat, we get an understanding that Jesus is looking beyond the statement that Nicodemus is making. Nicodemus didn't just come to Jesus to say, hey, like the cool tricks that you're doing. Heard about all the neat things that you're doing. Jesus had already made ripples in this culture with the things that he was doing. Nicodemus had a deeper issue within him, and Jesus hit it head on. Truly, truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. This term born again in our society has become watered down. It is used as jargon in our Christian culture and has even become cliche even in the, cult, in the secular culture. Jesus is making it clear to Nicodemus that he is not intending to use jargon. He is not intending to be cliche. He is making a very personal point to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Jew. Nicodemus was a son of Abraham. He was entitled to inherit salvation. And Jesus crushes that right off the bat. He takes what Nicodemus thought he had, all that he thought he had accomplished, and tells him it's nothing unless you're born again. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is the word born again properly translated is to be born from above. And so he is telling Nicodemus that all you have accomplished are your trophies, are your success. I don't care about any of that. In order to know me personally, you have to be born from above. So born again, I'll share some interesting statistics with you. The Barna Group, uh, kings of, of all statistics, right? They did a study on the, the, the term born again Christian, really kind of as a state of our culture here today. And what they determined is that 73% of Americans today identify as born again Christians. That's a big number. I think when I first read that, I thought, we're doing pretty good. The subset of that data tells us, though, only 31% claim to be practicing Christians. Only 26% of Christians believe that they have a responsibility to evangelize. So I don't know what they mean by the term practicing. 
But if only 26% believe that their responsibility is to evangelize, I'd probably use that number for practicing. 25% believe that in order to get to heaven, you just have to be good. They polled a, a group of people, a large group of people in the United Kingdom and asked them about their Christian friends. 65% said that their Christian friends were friendly. 52% said that they were caring. 39% said they were generous. 26% said that they were encouraging. And lowest on the list, 24% said that they were hopeful. So when Jesus uses the term born again, it has a very weighty meaning and not intended to be cliche or jargon. When we use that term, can we say that we are hopeful that we are encouraging, that we're generous. Nicodemus attempts to sidestep Jesus' statement, answer, and he asks, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Of God. Nicodemus knew his Bible. He knew scripture. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying to him, but he didn't want to accept it because he had established himself, because he had attained success, because he was, was wealthy and famous, and because he was good. He'd done everything he needed to do to attain this salvation, yet Jesus was showing him something very personal to him, that it has to come from God, not from you, from God. And he's addressing Nicodemus in a very personal, intentional way. I would argue that some of us are very similar to Nicodemus in that regard. We hold on to the things that we've accomplished, and they make us feel good at times. But just like Nicodemus, we're often in times found searching because the things that we're holding on to are not lasting. And they edify only temporarily. And Nicodemus, Jesus meets Nicodemus right where he is and he takes the time to encounter Nicodemus. And if you notice, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, there's not anger, there's not frustration. There's no argument that ensues. Jesus is gentle. He is merciful. He is graceful. Nicodemus doesn't know what he doesn't know. Jesus is revealing it to him. But he's doing so in a very gentle, merciful nature. And so I would tell you this morning that in our conversations with those that that don't know Jesus, if, if you are personally, if you are seeking what it means to to know Jesus and to know God personally. What a great text to show that our God is gentle, that he's merciful, that he's patient, he's forgiving. Jesus sits with Nicodemus. I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes as this very established wealthy individual has come to him to ask him questions, tough questions, 
Jesus doesn't walk away. Jesus spends the time with Nicodemus, answers the questions in a manner that are personal and intentional, and he doesn't walk away. There's no confrontation here. Jesus is providing truth to Nicodemus, things that Nicodemus should know as a, a teacher of the law, but things that have missed Nicodemus for whatever reason. And so in his gentleness, in his kindness, in his patience, in his grace, he sits with Nicodemus. He doesn't walk away. He converses with Nicodemus. And so what are your relationships like in that regard? For those that don't think like you, look like you, talk like you, do you sit? Do you enjoy the relationship with, that you have, the opportunity that you have with those people? Or do you walk away? Jesus did not walk away. If we skip over to chapter 4, we're introduced to this woman from Samaria. In verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So we saw how Jesus sat with Nicodemus and took the time with Nicodemus and he's about to do the same thing with this woman, again on the complete opposite side of the cultural and social spectrum. And he's already broken all sorts of cultural norms. We understand that the Jews did not like the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. Jesus was on his way to Galilee, and the only way to get to Galilee was, the direct route was through Samaria. However, in most cases, Jews, if they needed to get to Galilee, they'd take the most indirect route possible and go all the way around Samaria, way out of the way. But Jesus didn't. Jesus had an appointment with a woman at a well a very intentional, purposeful, personal encounter intended to change not only this woman's life, but several others as well, on down to you and me. So the cultural norm of traveling around Samaria was broken, and then we see that he speaks to her. All he did was ask for a drink of water, and we see her response. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She might, have, might as well have told him, please leave me alone. I'm not interested in having a conversation with you. Please leave me alone. I got a, a funny story, at least it's funny to me. I, early on in marriage, my wife and I were relocated to Las Vegas, Nevada, and I understand for some of you that may disqualify me as a Baptist, having lived in Las Vegas. Uh, I have repented. Uh, we asked for transfer as quick as we could and uh, forgiveness, and so I no longer live there now. But nonetheless, while we were there, I grew up here. I'm a friendly person. If you've ever had a conversation with me, I hope I've come off that way. I enjoy spending time with people, relating to people. People in Las Vegas were a little bit different. 
I'm standing in line at a grocery store and very often if you're standing in line behind me in a grocery store, I'll probably turn around and say something to you as I did on this occasion. The lady in front of me was uh, checking out and she was paying exact change so it was taking forever. She's sorting through her purse trying to find nickels and pennies and we had plenty of time so I turned around to the lady behind me and I just said, it's really hot outside. We were in the desert. It was really hot. It was an obvious statement. But her response to me was, please turn around and leave me alone. That was her response. I, I didn't really know how to take it. It was pretty awkward at that point, so I did exactly what she asked me to do. I turned back around and I faced forward, and we spent the next four or five minutes very awkwardly staring straight ahead and not having a conversation. It's the same response that Jesus gets from this woman. Please leave me alone. No clue what this woman had been through just in this particular day and was probably absolutely entitled to have the emotion that she had and the, the pain and the frustration having no desire to have a conversation with another man. But Jesus didn't walk away. Jesus sat there with her and began to teach her and show her things that are ultimately going to change her life. And he said to her, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Just ask. That's all he wants her to do is just ask. He's not running. He's not walking away. He doesn't care about her filth, about her shame. He doesn't care about Nicodemus' pedigree and all that he has accomplished and attained in his life. He doesn't care. He just wants her to ask. He is extremely intentional with this woman. And he is telling her to ask me to heal you, to calm you, to work in you, to bring you the things that you need. And her response is almost comical. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And I believe personally that Jesus now has this woman right where he wants her to be. She is hung up on her culture. She is hung up on the lot that she has drawn in life, and she is stuck. And all she can ramble back to the Savior of the world is how can you give me living water when you don't even have a bucket? And Jesus' response, I'm not giving you water that's going to quench your thirst temporarily. The life that you have lived, all that you have been searching for, all that you have tried on your own to attain is worthless. I don't care about your trophies. I don't care about your shame. I don't care about the sin. I don't care about the bad decisions that you've made. But you keep searching 
for hope, you keep searching for love, and you keep searching for a lasting relationship in all the things that you're searching for, that is temporal. That water will not quench your thirst, but the water that I have will quench your thirst. It will well up within inside you like a spring of living water. And Jesus meets her right where she needs to be met. And as she looks at Jesus, this man, no doubt, we understand, and he's about to bring her there, we understand that this is an adulterous woman who has done many things wrong in her life. In verse 16, he says, he says to her, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And you get this picture of this woman who is filled with shame and with guilt and she's just been punched in the stomach. This man that she doesn't even know knows her and has taken the time to talk to her. And he has just revealed something to her so shameful and embarrassing it would have felt like a punch to the gut. And you can see her tears welling up in her eyes as she's looking at this man and he's not walking away. Just like every other man in her life up until this point has walked away and has left her, this man is not because he desires to have a personal relationship with this woman. And he wants her to know him. And so he's staying. And he's going to do what it takes to make it clear to her that he's not going away. She rambles on about our culture says we worship on this mountain and your culture says we wor you worship on this mountain. And She tries to add something to the conversation in verse 25 and she says, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. This is what she has to add to the conversation. Jesus is asking her to add anything to the conversation. And then he changes her life in a way that was personal to her, in seven simple words. I who speak to you am he. She was sitting across from the Savior of the world, having a personal conversation about the filth and the yuck in her own life. And he sat there and he listened and he spoke, and he taught, and he was gentle, and he was kind, and he was gracious, and he was merciful, and he pointed to a way. Just like with Nicodemus, in a different way. In Nicodemus, in, in verse 314, he tells Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of, uh, son of man be lifted so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus is on a completely different level than this woman at the well, but yet he addresses his need in a personal and intentional way. This woman on a completely different level than Nicodemus, he addresses her need in a personal and intentional way. I who speak to you am he. 
put it all down, turn it all loose. I'm still here. I'm not walking away. I desire to have a personal relationship with you. And there's all kinds, there's all kinds of things that we can learn from these verses. But in this effort to evangelize, in this effort to uh, create a foundation of, of how to address those that don't know our God, don't call our God their God, the one thing that we can absolutely point to is that Jesus Christ is personal. And he desires for you to know him just like he knows you. So we have two individuals on complete opposite ends of the cultural and social spectrum. Two individuals with completely different reasons for not knowing Christ. Two individuals so far apart that there would seemingly be no chance for any sort of commonality between the two of them. But Jesus changes all of that because they were both searching. And that's all the commonality that they needed. And the beautiful part about this story is that even though they were on the opposite sides of, of the cultural spectrum, today they are united in heaven as brother and sister in the kingdom of God forever because he provided a way for them to do that. And he took the time and personally addressed their needs. And so in your conversations, in your relationships, can't you point to that? Can't you see how God fundamentally addressed their needs? What greater proof of a personal that a personal relationship exists do we need? So maybe the question is closed. Maybe it's as simple as, can I have a personal relationship with God? Yes. That's my experience. Nicodemus, woman at the well, had two completely different uh, experiences, but ultimately arrived to the same closed-ended response. Yes, you can. It took Nicodemus a while, right? But we see later on, uh, as, as he's willing to sacrifice his career and his status before the Sanhedrin, he stands up for Jesus. And we see at the end of uh, Jesus' ministry, as he's been buried, Nicodemus is there at the tomb. And Nicodemus was willing to give up everything he had attained. To that, at that point, Nicodemus didn't care any longer about what he had attained. He'd given it all up. His status, his career, it was all shot. And you find him giving what he had at that point in time. Burial spices and oils. But he was willing to give it up because of a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. The woman of the well was no different. We, we see that she ran from the well. She was so excited that she left everything she had, a bucket. And she ran back into Samaria telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. And we know that because of her encounter, that many Samaritans came to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's always a question within a question, right? And so if we're looking at can I know God personally, maybe that's, that's the question to answer. But 
Likely there's another question inside of that question. How? How do I know God personally? And he answers that in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have life eternal. And we see for us, now we can probably relate with Nicodemus and we can hold out our pedigrees and our trophies and all that we've accomplished. But we might be able to relate with the woman of the well and shame and sin and distance and indifference from God. But in case you can't, Jesus makes it very clear in John 3.16 and he says, God loves you so much that he sent me. And what better way to emphasize a personal relationship than for the God of the universe to come to heaven, to come to earth and live with us. This is a God that took time out of his day to meet with ordinary individuals to show them what it means to have a personal relationship with him. This is a man that broke all sorts of cultural norms. I'm reminded of a, a story where the, the leper comes to desiring so badly to, to hear what Jesus has to say that he's walking through the crowd and, and nobody wanted to touch him, make contact with him, look at him, smell him, and, and you see the, 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 the sea of the parting of, of the crowd as this man makes his way to Jesus and Jesus very personally and intentionally touches this leper, culturally abnormal. We see that a young girl passes away in her family. Although she's sick, they don't know that she's passed away yet. They beg to Jesus, please come. And he does. He doesn't have time to, but he makes time. And he walks in this little girl's room and he raises her and brings her back to life. We see Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus with Mary and Martha weeping because he's a personal God. Because he feels just like you feel. So in that, he's made a way for us. He has shown us that he is a very personal and very intentional God, and he desires to have a very personal and very intentional relationship with you. And just like with the woman at the well, all he's saying to you is just ask. Just like with Nicodemus, all he's saying to you is just look up. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have life eternal. I hope you believe that today. And I hope that uh, as we part here this morning that you have opportunities abounding uh, to share your personal relationship with Jesus and how it's impacted your life personally. Because I've shared the life of Nicodemus and the woman at the well, but you all have personal stories. And those are impactful because he's a personal God. The answer for me is yes, you can have a personal relationship with God. And it's personal to me, and I have evidence of that in my life. And you do too. And if you're here this morning and you don't know God personally, I beg of you, come find me. Come find another one of our elders and share with us what's going on in your life. Let us listen. And let us share with you what's changed our lives so fundamentally. Thank you all for being here this morning. Let's pray.
God, you are a good God. You are loving and gracious and caring and forgiving. And you take time to know us and you desire for us to know you. You have made a way for us when you didn't have to. You've forgiven us when you didn't have to. We are undeserving, but you love us anyway. And so God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for opening eyes and ears and softening hearts. And I pray that your glory would abound and that people would come to know you because of your word, your gospel message. We pray all things in Christ's holy name. Amen.